Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're gonna we're gonna talk about um, uh, the the nature of conflict, the roots of conflict, and um, and uh, how to how to deal with it, and and also just kind of like a um, kind of like a, a history of conflict, um, going back to the second day of creation, and what the dynamics are there. Um, so it's appropriate because we're this is. Uh, Parshas Pinchas that we were just doing. And Pinchas, of course, is, is the famous, in, in English, we, we use the word zealot, uh, someone who's really on fire. Um, in, in Hebrew, we say kanoi, uh, which is, has different connotations. But the, the, the greatness of Pinchas is that he was totally given over to the will of God. And... Um, the, the actual sort of like um, narrative of, of, of what happened, you, you kind of have to look up and get into the details of it, but, um, but the, 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 the interesting sort of like, uh, I'll use the word paradox, but, but that's probably the wrong word. Let's just say conflict or tension in Pinchas is that he kills two people who are going against the will of God, um, but it's, it's according to the halacha. They are sort of uh, deserving of this capital punishment. So what he's doing is in accordance with, uh, with Torah law. Nonetheless, the, the sort of the, the other aspect of it is that he's blessed with a covenant of peace. So God, God really makes him this, uh, this man of peace, and yet he distinguishes himself for this act of sort of like, you know, really getting into it, you know? So, so how do you resolve all of these things? Um, but the, the wonder of Pinchas is that even as he asserted his will so, um, so unbelievably, nonetheless, his act was completely free of self-interest and it was totally what we say, L'shem Shemayim. It was, it was completely um, for the sake of heaven. So, so let's kind of um, get into the here and now of this uh, as it kind of relates to us. And, you know, w- one thing that I've, I've noticed, and I think that all of us have to be on guard uh, for this all the time, is that, you see, a lot of times someone can say that they're, you know, they're, they're really kind of trying to make the world a better place. And they want to make uh, God more beautiful um, and understandable in people's eyes. But when they talk with each other, really there's another dynamic that's going on. And that dynamic is, I want you to understand that I'm right and you're wrong. Or the other person is, is really underneath the surface of it is like, I'm better than you are. And so even though if you look at a transcript, all the words are all about God, really it's one person asserting their ego over another person's ego. And this is, this is very toxic. And so the, the, the idea to be able to discuss these ideas and really to be actually given over to God is, 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 is a rare level. This is a rare level. And, and Pinchas actually captured this level. I was thinking, and this is just a little idea, I, I wouldn't put so much emphasis on this, but just an illustration of this. Um, if you take the gematria of the word Pinchas, it actually adds up to 208. 
And there's a system of gematria called um, misforkutten, where you keep on adding the numbers together till you just have one digit. So 208, if you add those numbers together, you would get 10, right? Because 2 plus 0 is 0, and 2 plus 8 is 10. And now you have two digits. So 10, 1 and 0. So 1 plus 0 is 1. In other words, what you have in Pinchas, when you boil it down to one number, is just the number 1. In other words, it wasn't about this dual agenda. It was just about God, just the oneness of God. And again, this is the, the greatness of a Pinchas manifest in a, just a, a, a small way, just in a small way. Um, now, now, I heard an unbelievable teaching, something so beautiful. Um, uh, and uh, I was at a, I was at a uh, kind of a, a tish with the Biala Rebbe this past Friday night. And I, it was just across the street from where I lived. I looked up the, at the clock when I got home. It was two in the morning. So I was like, wow, I like, didn't realize it was so late, you know. And the Rebbe said over this teaching from, from uh, Reb Mendel of Vorka. Uh, the Vorka Rebbe was, was one of the great Hasidic masters. His father, Rebbe Yitzchak Vorka, was actually best friends with the Kutzka Rebbe. So this is the Vorka Rebbe's son, the second Vorka Rebbe. And he was known as the silent Rebbe. He didn't really talk so much. And he didn't give public discourses for the most part, ever. And that made him sort of like a very sort of surprising figure, especially as someone who became one of the classic Hasidic Rebbe's, that he didn't really say over Torah publicly, or, you know, hardly ever at all. Um, I heard from Reb Shlomo that the Fabrengans, when he would gather with his Hasidim, he would sit at the table and they would sit in silence for like hours. And that at certain points, the Rebbe would just turn to someone and just look in their eyes. And the person would just, you know, just break down crying and doing tshuva like crazy, you know. Like what was able to be communicated with silence was just unbelievable. So, so, uh, so Rev. Mendel Avorka said the following explanation uh, from this uh, Mishnah in Perkei Avos. It, it talks about the importance when there's a gathering of people and they're eating together and things like that, how important it is for all of them to, to for people to say words of Torah at any gathering. And that, um, that if you don't, that it's, it's really compared to all sorts of horrible things like gatherings of pagans and idol worshippers and everything like that. So, but, but if you are able to say words of Torah between yourselves, then uh-huh. it sort of transforms the entire event. And, and the Shekhinah dwells. So, they, um, so this is in chapter uh, 3 of Pirkei Avos, and it's the third Mishnah. And it says, if, there is, um, if two people are sitting together and there's nothing between them, right? That's that this is a gathering of scorners. Okay, so that's what the Mishnah says. If there are two people sitting together and there's nothing between them in terms of words of Torah, this is called a gathering of scorners. So now listen to what Rev. Mendel Vorka does with that passage. Right? Um, he says, if there are two people sitting together, the Hebrew word in the Mishnah is ain. Ain means nothing. And there's nothing between them. So listen to how he understands this. He's at, so if there's nothing between them in terms of words of Torah, right? So he says, if there are two people sitting together and there's ain between them, if there's nothingness between them, 
In other words, if each person completely nullifies themselves and becomes nothing so that there's no other agenda, it's not about getting you to do this or you want me to do that or I'm right or I'm better or anything like that. There's just aim between them. There's nothingness between them. This is words of Torah. Right? And if, if it says, but if there is this between them, now in the classic context of just the simple reading of the Mishnah, the word zeh means if there are words of, um, you know, Torah between them, then that, that would be a positive thing. So he says, but if there's zeh between them, this, this, this means something concrete. In other words, if there is ego between them, if there's zeh between them, then this is a gathering of scorners. Because... Because it's just um, two people just sort of like battling over their, 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 their egos. That's, so that's just, you know, just a, you know, scorners hanging out together. But so again, this idea of um, the beauty of just sort of like looking to each other and just wanting what's best. In other words, how can I be the best friend to you in the moment? That that's the ideal sort of coming together of people. So, so this was Pinchas. Pinchas had this very exalted sort of like vision of what is, what, what's like the most, what's the best thing for the Jewish people? What's the best thing for God right now? And, and this is why he is called a man of peace, because he was able to bring about this, this healing, um, which was very, very great. Now, let's get into more kind of like the, the, the history of conflict the very roots of conflict in the universe itself. And I'm drawing from uh, the words of uh, Hagon Rav Moshe Shapiro, and um, he's one of the biggest rabbis in the world, and he is an unbelievable genius in Torah. And, um, and so I'm, I'm just going to give you a very small account of how he describes the, the, the roots of conflict in the world itself. So everybody knows that really conflict started on the second day of creation, okay? The first day of creation, remember, the first day of creation is called Yom Echad, right? And Yom Echad is hinting already at the oneness of God, right? Because we say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. That's the oneness of God. Then the second day of creation is already called Yom Sheni, okay? So it goes from one day of creation, because Yom Echad means one day, and Yom Sheni means the second day. So just be sensitive to this, because there's a grammatical shift in terms of the numbering here. We're going either from, I, don't, I know one is called cardinal numbers, and the other is called ordinal numbers. I, I forget which is which, but it should be the first day of creation, and the second day of creation, or it should be day one, day two. But it goes Yom Echad, Yom Sheni, one day, second day. So there's a shift there. And that shift is very resonant. There's a lot going on there. So, so already you see someone sort of like shifting, and appropriately, that first shift is also the origins of conflict in the world itself. Okay, so what happens on that day? Because we know that every single day there's certain events that happen on that day. So what happened on the second day of creation? And that was the splitting, the separation of the upper waters from the lower waters. 
Okay? Now, interestingly, I'll just tell you just as an aside, it talks about all the things that were created in, in, in Breshis, in the, in, the, in the account of the creation of the universe. One of the things that very sort of mysteriously is left out is the creation of water itself. You know, which is, it's, that's interesting. And so I heard Reb Shlomo say one time that water existed before the world was created, and that Hashem, so to speak, took a mikvah before he created the world. <laughs> Which is, again, this is, a God, God obviously doesn't have a body and everything like this, so this is all speaking in very sort of, uh, you know, mystical terms. But, but nonetheless, the Torah itself doesn't talk about the creation of water, which means that water itself is something very, very exalted. It's very exalted. As everybody knows, whenever it says water in the Torah, the, the Gomorrah says that water means Torah, that the, that the Torah is talking about Torah itself, whenever it's mentioning water. Another interesting thing about the word water is that it doesn't exist in the singular. It only exists in the plural. Mm. Mayim is water, but Mayim is plural. So there is no singular for it. So in other words, Mayim itself is speaking about unity itself. So, so again, that's an, an aspect of the exalted nature of water that in and, it, in and of itself is bespeaking unity. And we know that from water comes tahara, right? Purity. So all of these amazing things, all of these amazing things about water. Um, so what is this about the separation from the upper waters from the lower waters? Okay, and then once God separates the upper waters from the lower waters, then he creates land, and land then sh- serves as a shield for the lower waters, not overwhelming the earth overwhelming the land. And we know that if you've, and we've all been or seen, obviously, beaches, that what happens at a beach is the water stops, right? And for the most part, I mean, there are rare occasions like tsunamis and things like that where it overflows. But the regular nature of the world since the beginning of creation is that water stops at the land. And if you think about that, that's not obvious at all. Because you know that the overwhelming um, uh, uh, majority of the topography of the earth is water. So why shouldn't water just cover all the land? Mm. You know, if you think about it, it's like it really, well, you say, well, maybe the water is higher, or the, the, the land is higher than the water, but there's so much water. Like, we didn't run out of water. In other words, there's something, there's something miraculous going on in the fact that the water just stops at the land, okay? Now, what about the fact, and we're going to integrate all these things in a moment. I'm just asking questions right now. What about the fact that a human being, and this is for men and women, because the first human being was a combination of man and woman, right? So that's Adam. What about the fact that human beings come from the word land? Adama is land. Adam is human being. So how does that tie in, okay? So now let's take a few steps back, and now I want to return back to uh, Rav Shapiro's um, uh, explanation of these ideas. So, you know, this idea of the upper waters and the lower waters, and, you know, you see this, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver talks about this in another context, where he says, you know, the, the letter Aleph is sort of a cosmic map of the universe, 
because Aleph is really composed of three different parts. There's the upper Yud, and then there's the lower Yud, and there's this, there's this Vav diagonally in between. And Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver says that the upper Yud, that's the, that's the upper waters, and the lower Yud, those are the lower waters. And the Vav in between, Vav is the number six, which is the six orders of the Mishnah, that's the Torah itself, and that's the Torah and the firmament, the Rakia, sort of like, kind of like giving definition and, and, and making peace between the two. So, so you see this, the upper waters and the lower waters in a lot of places. You can also see reference, um, uh, open reference to the upper waters um, in, in uh, Tehillim number 104. We say that, that's Barchi Nafshi that we say on Rosh Chodesh. You see, it's, there's, there's a lot of Torah on the upper waters. So just, just so you know that it exists. All right, so let's, let's get back into this idea of resol- resolving conflict. You see, the idea is like this. The lower waters seek to overwhelm. And the lower waters really represent the pleasures of this world. You know, interestingly, you, you actually see that idea, not just philosophically, but you actually see that in halacha itself. As we get, um, we should know from it, we should only have good times, but one of the halachas of a mourner is that someone who loses someone really can't shower for the, uh, for, for the shiva period for the first seven days, because water is considered like a very pleasurable kind of thing. And of course, we know um, from the, really the beginning of time, going to bathhouses, you know, this idea of just soaking and bathing and everything like that, that that is considered by nature a very pleasurable thing. So, so you actually even see this in halacha itself. Um, so the lower waters are those pleasures of this world, which appear to be disconnected from the overall purpose of this world. In other words, when you experience the lower waters, when a person is sort of like overwhelmed or overcome by temptation and desire and things like that, what happens is there's a certain tunnel vision that takes place in a person. Actually, the Gomorrah refers to it as a spirit of insanity, if you can believe it or not. That's, That's what it's called. That basically, so what is that spirit of insanity? It's a person who loses touch with the big picture at that moment and just has a normal, or just like this very tunnel vision on whatever is occupying their mind at that moment, right? So that's what the lower waters represent because the lower waters are disconnected from the higher waters. And so, and what do the lower waters seek to do? They seek to completely overpower the land. Now, What Rav Shapiro says is something very, very interesting. And I'll just give you a little background for this thought because it's a very, very deep idea and a very Jewish idea because, and a very, very empowering and liberating idea, which is the idea that we don't believe in inherent existence. And I'll explain what that means in a moment. You see, what that means is like, for instance, I'm holding up a book right now, okay? Now, if... We don't believe that this book exists right now because it existed a moment ago. I'll say that again. We don't believe that this book exists right now because it existed a moment ago. We believe that God is creating the world every single moment and that this book 
existed a moment ago and that God brought it and all of us and the entire world, you know, a fraction of a nanosecond later and it's a fresh creation again. Okay? So if you believe that this, mo- this book exists now because it existed a moment ago, then you believe in something called inherent existence, which means that it will just continue to exist until it's destroyed. Right? That it exists independently. Right? And it will just continue to exist until someone burns it or destroys it. Right? Or you can take this much phenomenally deeper understanding, which is that it's being brought into existence every single moment along with the rest of the world. So the idea is, as it applies to land, is that land is coming into existence every single moment in order to stop the lower waters from overwhelming and completely wiping us out. You see, it's not just that they exist and they stop the water. They're recalled into existence every single moment to stop the waters. Okay? Now, with that in mind, we can get a much deeper understanding of what it is to be a human being. Because again, this land, which is called into existence every moment to stop the lower waters from overwhelming us, we're made out of this. Remember, a human being is called Adam. And Adam comes from Adama, which means land. So the job of a human being, or one of the primary roles of a human being, is to be able to be that beachhead, so to speak, to be that border which is stopping the lower waters from overwhelming you and the world itself. To summon that strength to be able to not be overwhelmed. You know, I think one of the things that is um, really not given sufficient honor and one of really the triumphs of life is actually getting out of bed and making it through the day. (laughs) You know, it's sort of like people, I'm I'm being deathly serious right now. You know, one of the, we we measure, okay, we say, well, well, that's a given, you know? Oh, so you didn't become a crack addict today. That's that's a given. None of that's a given. (laughs) None of that is a given. You know, and and it's sort of like, well, you know, where's your book? Where's the book that you wrote? Where's the film that you made? Where's the, you know, portfolio that you assembled? You know, we we tend to sort of like just focus on that as the sole measure of success. But what I'm trying to tell you is not flaming out is a huge measure of success. Getting through, being, being, being a human being, an Adam from Adama, which stops the waters from completely wiping you out. Just getting through and standing up is an enormous accomplishment. It really is, you know. And 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 again, you know, just because um, Western society is so skewed and and whatever, it just whatever, it just it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't give any tribute at all to that, you know. I remember I had a, an experience, so one of the most moving experiences I had as an undergraduate, 
And I just read sections of the book, but um, it was a, a course ta taught by Robert Coles, who is a, a very big sociologist, um, and he's sort of like one of these revered Harvard professors. And he, he taught this book by James Agee called Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. And in one of the most lyrical, amazing books, he, he writes, James Agee writes sentences that go on, I think sometimes for pages. They're, they're like, it's just, it's just amazing writing. And I remember Robert Coles, who like was famous for like, like being with sharecroppers um, in the South and, you know, being really with people in dire poverty. I remember he stood in front of, it was in the Science Center, if you know where that is. Uh, and, it, it, you know, there were hundreds of people there. And, you know, this sort of wizened older man just said, you know, isn't it enough just to be a man? You know, meaning, you know, he didn't use the word mensch. But <laughs> that's what he meant. You know, just, you know, just, what about just the greatness of just being a mensch? You know? And I remember that was like, wow, that got into my bones, you know? Um, so, so let me read you the words of uh, Rabbi Shapiro himself. Actually, he speaks in Hebrew, but this is an English translation. So, so he says human beings, when he uses the word he, he means uh, a person. He was created not from the land that is different from the sea, but from the land that limits and restricts it and does not allow it to spread here. I'm going to read that one more time. In other words, he's saying, he's saying that the land, when you say you're created from the land, that you're Adam who's created from Adama, it's not just that you know, you're from San Francisco and not from Detroit. It's not just you're from the land and not the sea. All right? It's not that. He was created not from the land that is different from the sea, but from the land that limits the sea and restricts it and does not allow it to spread here. So this is our internal dynamic, which is the ability, the ability to be a frontier, sort of like the, 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 the border, which stops these forces of the world from overwhelming us. Okay, now he says the next step, which is very interesting, which is if you can be that type of person, and of course all of us have our ups and downs, you know, we have better days and worse days, and better hours and worse hours, and better minutes and worse minutes, right, you know? So, so he says, if you're that type of person who is able to stop the lower waters, in other words, if you have the wherewithal to resist temptation, right, then what happens is you become a vessel for the upper waters. Mm. So the upper waters, now the upper waters really represent like everything great, you know? These are the higher truths. This is sort of like the Shefa. This is like the Shekhinah. This is like the divine flow. So if you are someone who's able to sort of like stand in the breach between these competing forces and to be a real human being at that moment, someone who's created from the land, right? Then at that point, you yourself become the resolution of conflict. You yourself become that bridge between the higher waters and the lower waters. And you become the recipient of the inspiration and the greatness of the higher waters, the upper waters. So that's, 
That's, that's, to me, that's very inspiring. That's, that's, like, that's very cool. And, and by the way, a human being is, is also referred to as a vav. Again, men and women both. Because if you think about it, just, you know, a vav is just a straight line up and down. So just look how, what, what a person looks like. Just a straight line up and down. So if you return back to the idea of the letter Aleph, you've got the upper yud, right? The upper waters. You've got the lower yud, the lower waters. And then you have the vav in between. In other words, the human being himself, by harnessing the power of the Torah, which is also called the vav, then becomes that resolution of conflict between the upper waters and the lower waters, between truth and temptation, if you will. So, so this is something that, that we can all do. Now, let's, um, let's just talk about just a couple of ideas. You know, I always like to um, mention this teaching because I, I love it so much. I heard it first from Rabbi Pliskin, and um, it's in the name of the Kutzker Rebbe. And he says like this, that, um, that a person is never surprised to meet someone who doesn't look like them. So why are you always so surprised to meet someone who doesn't think like you? Right? is one of the classic teachings. So in other words, what are our expectations when we interact with each other? That's, that's something, you know? In other words, in other words that's, that's another one of the roots of conflict or potential conflict. And, and this is the greatness of, of seeing other people with a good eye and, and, and to root for other people's success. This is also very important. You know, I... This sounds like something very subtle, and, and maybe you'll um, not agree with this point, but just hear the idea behind the point. One of the things that, I, 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 if I hear good news, what I try to say is, I'm so happy, as opposed to, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> like, and most people say, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> And again, I, I don't not, I'm not trying to pick on anyone. I'm just trying to just try to get behind it a little bit. What's what's what, what, uh, on a very subtle level, but I think a meaningful level is um, what, what this says to me. I'm so happy for you. Is for you, I'm happy. For me, I'm not happy. <laughs> oh yeah, it's great that something good happened for you. Doesn't help me at all, right? <laughs> so so, but if a person says I'm so happy, that means your good news is my good news. Right? I can celebrate in your simcha, in your happiness, in your joy. This is, this is important, you know? This is, this is important. Because if we really are one soul, and we are one soul, then, then it really is your good news, in, in, in a real way, you know? It's not just giving someone else the benefit of the doubt. And this gets into, this is sort of the opposite of really what the roots of jealousy are. See, I heard Reb Shlomo explain jealousy in the most concrete way, a beautiful way. See, imagine, um, and you can pick any example in the world. I'm going to say a car, okay? But it really can be anything, okay? Let's say someone has, uh, someone just bought a car that you really have been wanting. You love that car, and you, ah, oh, it would be so great if I had that car, and you've wanted that car for who knows how long, you know, whatever it is. I'm giving a very mundane example. They're much more much more compelling examples. But let's just say a car for now. So then, then, then your friend or your neighbor or whatever it is buys that car. You don't have that car, right? So, so what is the jealousy that takes place then? Listen to this. Very amazing. So Reb Shlomo says, jealousy is thinking that someone else has your portion. 
In other words, it's not just, I really want that thing. What, what a person thinks deep down in their heart is, you took my thing. <laughs> Do you hear that? That's very deep. That's really deep. You took my thing. But can I tell you something? It's not your thing. Because if it was your thing, you would have it. It's their thing. And what's the proof? They have it. <laughs> right? It's very straightforward. Very straightforward. And, and more than that, God doesn't have a shortage of Lexuses. He didn't run out, and that guy got the last one. Right? So it's not, it wasn't a problem. Like, there was just one who gets it. If it was meant for you, you would have it. You know? And God has all sorts of amazing ways of giving things to people, if he wants to. If he wants to, you know? I mean, um, I, I, I read a story from the person who it happened to, um, uh, Gil Locks in the, in the old city in Jerusalem. And I don't remember all the details about it, but, but basically he just dedicated himself to this mitzvah of putting mezuzahs up in people's houses. And he just like, whatever it was. And, um, and there's a teaching that says that basically God gives us a house just so we can put a mezuzah on it. And we talk about just the greatness of God that, you know, you know, just anyway. So he talks about how he, he basically had zero money. He had no money at all. And next thing that he knew is because he was putting mezuzahs on houses, he now has his own piece of property in the old city that he was just given, basically. And it's a whole story. I don't know the details. But I'm just trying to tell you that, that God has amazing ways to give. You know, when I realized this in my own life, many years ago, and this is a small example. There are much better examples, but a small example. I remember when I was in like my mid-20s or something, I opened up the mail and I had gotten a check from the government of France. Right? I was like, why is the government of France giving me $70? It was $70. <laughs> it was because they had passed some sort of law compensating writers of television for episodes because of the introduction of VCRs. So as a result, the government of France was giving me $70. And I remember just holding that check and thinking, wow, you know, if God wants to give you something, you can't hide from it. <laughs> you know, he'll, he'll find a way. He'll find a channel to do it. You know, so, so we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't be afraid, you know. And we shouldn't have the, the, the eye, and this would really be called a bad eye, God forbid. We shouldn't have the eye of ever looking at someone who has something that we aspire to and to think that's my thing. Because it isn't. You can, you can use that as a, you know, as a, please God, I, please God, bless me with that too. And, and you can be, you, your heart can be broken, you know, when you see something, someone with it. doesn't mean your heart isn't broken. Your heart can be broken, but you're not channeling it against the person. You're just using that energy as sort of like the springboard for a prayer. Right? And then that's a way to direct the inner turmoil. That, that often happens to us in a positive way, to sublimate it, to be fancy. Um, so I just want to um, talk about conflict now from a different direction right now and talk about it um, just in terms of 
what's going on in Israel right now. And again, um, I'm not coming from a political standpoint, but just we just have to appreciate just on one level what's going on right now. And uh, probably as we're speaking right now, bombs are dropping on Israel. Rockets are dropping on Israel right now. Probably. I hope not. But that's what's been going on. So, so we have to appreciate that God is openly, 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 openly doing miracles for us right now. And how the extent to which we're the recipient of unbelievable kindness from heaven right this second. And, 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 and simultaneously, I want to caution against saying, oh, the Iron Dome is doing it, right? Our missile defense system is doing it. And I had a conversation with someone, and I said, you know, they said, you know, the Iron Dome is doing such a great job. And I said, well, I said, God is, is doing it. God is protecting us. And then the person said, God gave us the Iron Dome, which is now protecting us. And I said, no, God is protecting us through the illusion of the Iron Dome. And then they said, no, it's the Iron Dome. And then I said, don't make God angry. And I don't, I don't think I've ever said those words in my life. <laughs> you know? Because it's sort of like, if you want to say that, um, you know, these rockets are just, well, they, they never hit their targets. Why is it that they never hit their targets? They're always just dropping in different places, you know? They're, they're never hitting their targets. It's all seemingly random. Well, if that's the case, why can't they not hit their target and then hit another target? In other words, just be a little logical about it. If it's not hitting their target, then it should be hitting other targets, which are targets. But they're not hitting those targets either for the most part. I mean, a few, thank God, there are a few exceptions. But for the most part, it's hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of rockets are being fired and they're not hitting anything. Do, do you understand that this is God himself who's like openly, you know, and then meanwhile, on the Israeli side, what's going on? Hundreds of targets are being hit. So how do you explain it? it it's, it's God. God actively, openly doing this. And we have to say that it's God. We have to speak in those terms. Because otherwise we're being, we're not being, we're not, we're, we're, we're really being like lousy guys, basically. You know, that God should be doing this in such an, a revealed way. And for us to, you know, where are miracles today? How come God doesn't do miracles today? I mean, open your eyes, right? So, so this, is, this is an awesome thing. And I was talking with someone, and they said something really beautiful. And I really, I, I see a connection too, and this is just an impression, you know, you can, as they say, take it or leave it, but I'm, I'm just offering it, right? It's not my thought, but I, it, it, it moved me when I heard this. You know, you you had two events like right next to each other in terms of just the current events. You had the, the, the kidnapping of the, of the boys, you know, and, 
this um, and their murder, their Meshavah should have an aliyah, really. Soul should be avenged, you know. And uh, and then this rocket war, like pretty much one after the other, and this unbelievable siyata de shamaya help from heaven that's going on right now. Thank God. And what this person was saying was that, you know, these were three religious boys, three yeshiva boys. And, and, and he said that it was sort of like a test for general Israeli society because, you know, a good portion of Israel, or I don't know what the percentages are, but at least half of Israel is not quote-unquote religiously observant, right? And yet, these three religious boys was that's all anyone was thinking about or talking about since it happened. In other words, there was a huge, like almost like an unprecedented level of unity that took place, not just in Israel, but worldwide. Worldwide. I mean, I can't even tell you how many emails from separate organizations I got about events that were taking place for them and prayers that have to be said for them and all these initiatives are... I mean, it was all the world was thinking about and doing. And so this unity, I think, was a tremendous chus, was a tremendous merit for the Jewish people. And if you want to talk about an iron dome, that's like an iron dome. When we have that level of unity, that's phenomenal. And again, I, I'm not saying that's the only thing or that's even it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not offering any opinion. All I'm saying is just, just if you just see it in that context, there's something very amazing and compelling there, you know? Um, and I'll just end with um, just one thought, just a, a personal story. Um, and, uh, you know, when the boys were found, and uh, they were not, you know, they'd been nifter, they were not with us. So... I was at work when I got that information, and I, I was, as everyone who heard the news was, was devastated. And there was someone there who wasn't Jewish, a very nice person, and um, and he was like, "What's what's what's wrong? You know, you know, why are you so upset?" And so I said, "They they they found the boys, you know," yeah. and I told him what. And he's like, the boys, what? I'm like, you, d- you didn't hear about it? It's like, no, I didn't hear about it. And then he's still trying to figure out why you're so upset. He goes, you knew them? It's like, no. I, like, I didn't even, I almost didn't even understand the question. Mm-hmm. I was like, I said, no, I didn't know them. Mm-hmm. And then he figured it out. He goes, oh, you knew their families. No, I, I, I didn't know their families. And then, like, a little while later, I... During the course of their, you know, while they were missing, when I'd get to the Shmon Esrei, you know, and I'd want to pray for them, I was having trouble remembering their names because their names were just a little complicated for me. So like when I'd get up to that part of the Shimon Esra, I'd pull out my cell phone and look up the email with their names in it and so I could say their names properly. 
And I was doing that for a while, and then I realized that it was just too cumbersome. So I just took an index card, and I wrote out their names on the index card, and I put it in my pocket. Oh, put it in my pocket. I didn't want to stop carrying it, you know. So, and then I could just take it out and read it, you know. And it was just simpler. And so then, at a certain point, you know, I just took out the card from my pocket and I, I just showed him the names, you know. And then he was like, he, he got it a little bit better. And this idea that we're all brothers and sisters, that we really are brothers and sisters, amen, amen. that it's not, it's not a joke. It's not a joke. It's, it's wherever we are in the world, whether you ever met the person, whether you didn't meet the person, we're one family, and it's the truth. And when you see an event like this, and you see it's three boys who you never met, who you don't know, and at the same time, what do you mean I don't know them and I haven't met them? That's me, you know? So, so this is something that clearly the world doesn't get. The world doesn't understand who we are. They, they don't understand that, because if you don't get that, you don't understand anything about us. You know? And so Hashem should bless us that, that we should really be Adam in the, in the truest sense. That we should be unified ourselves, and that we should be able to be that link between the upper waters and the lower waters, to be able to be that beachhead, to be able to resist temptation, however it manifests itself, right? I mean, temptation has sort of like a R-rated quality to it when you use that word, but it, it, it comes in many forms. It's, a, it's like, let's say, oh, you know, I should daven now. Okay, I'll pray, you know, you know, after this TV show is over. That's also what I'm talking about. You know, or, you know, something, that food, it's not really good for me. You know, maybe saying, okay, so maybe I can, you know, shop for something or look into something that, that makes more sense to, to eat. Or, or, or now it's time to learn. Let me actually just learn. You know what? Let me concentrate a little bit better. Whatever it is. I mean, all of these things are when we talk about the lower waters and being a beachhead against them. We're, we're talking about all of these things. And then the sources, the roots of conflict in the world become dissolved and they become bridged. And to understand that someone else's simcha, someone else's good time, is also a victory for us. That it's not coming out of our pocket. It's not coming out of our pocket. And, and, and we can be a little bit more generous and a little bit more expansive in, just, in, in terms of our own uh, sense of what's I. Like, you know, I remember I, I, I talked to a couple that just got married. I said to them, you know, from now on, I means we, Amen. you know, that that's, you know, when you talk about I, that, that includes your wife now, <laughs> you know, or that includes your husband now, that's the new I, right? So, so I also means all of us together. That, that, that means I too. And, and if we can have that more expansive concept of who we are, then, then we'll really be able to bring the ultimate peace to the world. Amen. Amen. Amen.
So, um, yes, the, 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 that second day of creation, the word good is not mentioned. And it's not mentioned until the next day where it's mentioned twice. So that's because that's the day of the origin of conflict. And by the way, it says that on that second day of creation, Gehenna was created. Wow. You know? So, you know, that's, uh, that's the second day. That's the second day. I think and, seconds yeah. are like that. Like the second part is, is, is the Noah, yeah, yeah. Water okay, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, water too. Water. Yeah, water and yeah, what, 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 what gets us in the end on the second day? Second Parsha. Beautiful connection huh. is, yeah, it water, Parsha's Noah, the flood just comes in, wow. wipes everything out. Torah, the purest. But I also want to say we're like 90% water, so even yeah. though we're made of a... T- like I'm just thinking a lot lately about the idea of boundaries and like the holiness right. of boundaries mm-hmm. and even like even with that teaching that, that we are made of earth and that's the boundary so much I mean the water in us is lower waters, you know, it's like mm-hmm. and that it has to be that way. When we make the space for the higher waters, by virtue of being a vessel it has to also be able to hold the lower water to like Every time you make space for higher waters, yeah, well, we're all water. I, I hear what you're saying, and, and just I'm just going to say what you just said, but use different words. That you know, it says in the Talmud that if you save one person's life, it's like you save the whole world. So we know from many places that a person, each human being, is a microcosm of the whole world. And so, based on what you're saying, since we are mostly composed of waters. Right? Human beings are made out of water for the most part, but then we have some uh, more concrete physicality as well. Right? So this war goes on in a person. The lower waters are very real. These are your, your passions and your internal desires. These are the lower waters crashing against your beachfront, basically, and your, your, your will. And I think that what I want to do is maybe add a, one more thought to this which is that to the extent that we can stand up against this rush of water within ourselves, right? Then we transform the 90% that we are of water, whatever it is, from lower water to higher water. Oh, man, oh, man. That's, that's, that's the transformation. So, so, so because then we become these amazing vessels of inspiration, right? Right. Yeah. So it seems like the emotional has to be raised up to a higher level. Right. And that's where the separation happens, where people emotionally have an emotional response to some to right. something that's not clicking for them. So. Right. Mm. And that's why you know a lot of times it's sort of like when someone feels that that rush of emotion, the ability to just sort of like breathe. And just sort of like not to be reactive at that moment. You know what I mean? Like not to run for X at that moment. Because a lot of people have, they self-medicate in all sorts of ways. You know, whether it's food or drugs or sex or whatever it is, they run toward that thing which will still the, the, the turmoil of the moment. And if a person can just sort of like breathe through it and just sort of like whatever it is, you know, take a, take a walk around the block, whatever it is, you know, just to be able to, 
just get back into a normal place, then they're okay because that is one of the that is one of the secrets basically of understanding how the Yetzirah works is that the evil inclination is that it, it, it like it launches this attack. Mm. But if you are able to just sort of like just like just for a few moments even, just to maintain your integrity of presence, then it subsides in a fairly surprising way. Not to say that it won't reoccur till we die, <laughs> which, it, which, it, which it will, <laughs> but, but, you know, in different levels of intensity, in different levels of intensity, you know? Yeah. Is there some kind of a redemptive quality in the first, like, being miracle-made also parting of waters? Okay, excellent. And I didn't, I didn't get to it. I didn't get to it, unfortunately. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, Rabbi, Rabbi Shapiro goes on to say that by the splitting of the Red Sea, that what happened there was a, um, a playing out again of the second day of creation. Mm. That that happened. And that the, the splitting, I'm sorry? In a positive way. A very positive, in a, in a very positive way. That, that the Jewish people merited, basically, to have the water split. And he, gives, he brings a very interesting medrash. And he says that, um, you know, Hashem says to Moshe, and it, it, seemingly in, in a rebuke, I mean, it doesn't necessarily come across exactly as a rebuke, but the rabbis hear a rebuke in this from God, was that when, when Hashem says to Moshe, why are you, you know, why are you crying out to me? You know, like, do something. Right? And meaning to say, and this is how the Medrash sort of unpacks the words of God in this, in this instance, Moshe, I separated the waters for the sake of one person, Adam, on the second day, for this person who was to be for, formed on the sixth day. I did it for the sake of one person. Do you think I'm not going to part the waters again for the sake of the entire nation? So do something. Just walk forward because the waters are going to split for you. Mm. And that, and you should have known this. You should have been able to figure this out. Right. So that's, that's sort of a surprising medrash. But, that, but yes, yes, you have this idea. And, and I'll just tell you a beautiful idea that um, Ari, one of the chevra at the uh, Happy Minion said, was that, you know, the splitting of the sea is really... It's credited to a number of different places, but the two most famous places that it's credited to is Nachshon jumping into the water, and then the sea splits. Nachshon is from the tribe of Yehuda, and the other most famous reason why they say the sea split is because of um, the bones of Yosef. And, and interestingly, listen to this, this is like, this is amazing, because Yosef was able to control his desire with Potiphar's wife, right? right? Mm. And that wasn't a simple temptation. You know, the way I heard it explained was, it was like a hundred different lions tearing at him. Wow. Okay? And the way someone else described it was, imagine chewing something absolutely delicious mm. and having this incredible, intense, flavorable thing in your mouth and not swallowing. Wow. Like, what, what was the level that that Yosef was able to bear. But again, getting back to the way we discussed it, although Rav Shapiro doesn't mention this, that because Yosef was able to be Adam, right, that, that beachhead against the approaching storm of the waves, right, what happens? 
the water splits and dry land appears. So there's like this ma- amazing mita connected mita, this amazing correlation between what he accomplished in his life and the miracle that took place. Um, but what Ari was saying was something beautiful, was that there's another aspect of conflict of resolution here, which is that it's credited to the tribe of Yehuda and to Yosef. And Yehuda and Yosef are, are great adversaries in terms of like the sale of Yosef. Really, ultimately, the bill for that, even though there are other parties that had an influence in it, so to speak, the, the bill went to Yehuda. And, you know, right after Yosef gets sold, the next passage in the Torah is Yehuda went down. And then he basically left his brothers because his brothers was like, you're not fit to lead us anymore. And Rashi brings this thing, gives me the chills. It's like, and it's a lesson to every one of us, believe me. The brothers said to Yehuda, had you told us not to sell him, we would have listened to you. And this should give us strength that so many times we're so intimidated by peer pressure from other people, we, oh, do we really have to go to that non-kosher place? I mean, let's just go to this place, you know what I mean? Or a thousand other examples. Do we really have to do it that way? But we're so intimidated and afraid, and here the brothers told Yehuda, had you just said it, we would have listened to you. So, so, so interestingly, the splitting of the waters, which is the resolution of conflict here, because it was the salvation that took place, is sort of a joint enterprise between Yehuda and Yosef, so to speak, getting together. On one, on one way of learning it. That's Ari's Torah, but it's Can beautiful. Can you send yeah. an email to everybody that we have gathering today at the Federation, Jewish yeah. Federation 430? 430, yeah. Yeah, so everyone everyone should know that. Yeah, yeah. 430. Yeah. Between four, four, four o'clock. Four o'clock. That's what you said. Four o'clock. Four thirty. Okay. So we can check. Yeah. Yeah. That's um in Westwood. Yeah. Not in Westwood. On Wilshire. On Wilshire. Oh. They're busy on Wilshire and Westwood. It's on Wilshire and Westwood. Oh, Wilshire and Westwood. Yeah. Yeah. Not federal building. Jewish Federation. Wilshire and La Jolla. That's another thing then. Yeah, you know, the, it's, it's confusing because they, those, both of those places are on Wilshire and they're both ga- gathering points for, for demonstrations like this. Yeah. So go and check. Go and check because it could be one or the other. Go ahead. So does uh, Hashem always test us to the limit of our abilities regardless of where we try to put ourselves? Yeah. In other words, yeah. you have a question yeah. like, yeah. I can, I was at a party a week ago yeah. and wow, wow, Hashem really... Yeah. Wow. Right. Give me some temptation test. Yes. Unbelievable. Right. But had I not gone to that party, right. I was supposed to go to the Rainbow Festival. I was like, oh, I'm going to do some Gavura. Yeah. I'll stay here in LA and take care of stuff. Right. Yeah. Should I ended up putting me in this party where right. I was like, right. you know, uh, had I not gone there, would that temptation, would Hashem have brought me those tests to the same level in a different environment? No, I don't, I don't think so. You know, um, we have, uh, there's an interesting teaching uh, in the Gemara that you see back in the day, before washing machines, you know, um, women would do the laundry, and the way they would do the laundry is they would go down to the river, you know, in large parts of the, the world, and they would be in the water, and they'd be washing. And, you know, it, a lot of times it, it wasn't so, you know, you know, water makes your, your clothes wet, and, you know, if one desires, they could 
see many things. Yeah. So, um, so there's a story about a, a man who would, uh, who was walking to a place, and he had a choice. The the one way was by the river where the women were bathing, or washing. Yeah. Probably they were doing both. You know, the 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 other way was another way. So he thought to himself, I'll go by the way where they're bathing, and I won't look. So this is an even greater level. This is an even greater level because I'm going by this source of temptation, and I'm not taking part of it. And the Gomorrah calls him a fool. So, you know, seemingly you could learn it out that, yes, that actually is an even greater level. But basically, the, 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 the rabbi's um, basic take is that one should endeavor not to put themselves in a place of temptation to begin with, right? So, um, so then you have to gauge, you know, you know then, then everything becomes, where, where am I holding at this moment? Because you could say to yourself, you know something? Maybe a person can build themselves up to a place where they could go to a party like that. And it's, and it's, it's like um, there's, they don't see anything, right? Maybe that's true. But you know what? Maybe the next day they aren't on that level, but they've come to think of themselves as someone who was at that level. So in other words, one has to be able to have the ability to take their temperature in an honest way on an ongoing basis. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, just the general idea is that God gives us the ability to resist the tests that we're confronted, except when we bring them on ourselves. So, um, that the general rule is that we say that God gives us the ability to pass the tests that he gives us, except for the ones that we bring on ourselves. Wow, wow, wow. And so then we don't necessarily get the, the, the siyata de shemaya, the help from heaven, in order to pass those things. And we learn that out from King David. And it says that King David said, why, why does it say in the, in the Shemona Esrei, in the Amida, it says the God of Abraham, the God of Yitzchak, and the God of Yaakov. Why doesn't it say the God of David? Now you have to really be a humble person to ask God that. Right? So it tells you the greatness of... King David's humility that he was able to say such a thing to God. You know, you, you have to understand on that level. So God says, well, you know something? I, I tested them and they passed my tests. So King David says, so test me too. And then God says, okay, I'll test you. And not only, not only am I going to test you, but I'm going to tell you how I'm going to test you. I'm going to test you with a woman. Right? And it says he was looking out the window and there was a rooftop outside of his window, and there were some curtains that were raised around it, right? Like a shielded off area. And there was a mikvah on top of that roof, right? Because they, you know, a mikvah is made from rainwater, right? And uh, he looked out the window, and all of a sudden the curtain blew down. <laughs> and there he beheld Bathsheba. Right? And so... And continues the story. <laughs> and so, um, you know, uh, he, he brought it on him. He brought it. He brought it on himself because. But he, you know, he he didn't bring it on himself because he wanted a good time. He brought it on himself because 
he really was one of the foundations of the Jewish people for real. We say that the Nesham of Mashiach has to, by lineage, trace itself to King David. Not only that, but we have really four meals of Shabbos, is the truth. We have Friday night dinner, that's Abraham. We have Yitzchak, who's lunch. And I heard a beautiful explanation of why is Yitzchak lunch, right? Because um, Reb Shlomo said, Yitzchak never left Israel. He was the only one of the three uh, Avos, holy fathers, who didn't leave Egypt, okay? Oh, Israel, I'm sorry. Didn't go down into Egypt. So he, he was in Israel his whole life. So Reb Shlomo said something that always kind of stayed with me, which is that, that, that you wake up at Shabbos, right? Shabbos day, right? You wake up at Shabbos, you have your Shabbos meal. Mm. Then, you, then you take a nap after your meal, or I certainly do. And then you, you wake up after your nap, and it's still Shabbos, amen, amen. right? You never leave Shabbos. So it's like Yitzchak is lunch, because it's sort of like you wake up in Shabbos, you go to sleep, you wake up, it's still Shabbos, you know? Yaakov is third meal, and King David is the Malava Malka. That's the meal after Shabbos is over. So technically, it's really not a meal of Shabbos, and yet it's called the fourth meal of Shabbos. Right? And there's something very amazing about the fact that it actually isn't Shabbos, but it's called Shabbos, and that the Neshama of Mashiach comes from King David, because the Messianic period is called the day that will be all Shabbos. So basically what you see is Shabbos entering into the space of not Shabbos and making it Shabbos. Right? This on a very deep, deep level, I want to say this Torah, is perhaps an explanation of why the food that we eat for the Malava Malka, right, after Shabbos is over, it says that that food is the only food that you eat which feeds the loose bone. The loose bone is a bone in the back of your neck, and it says that we'll be resurrected in the time of the resurrection of the dead from the loose bone, and that all of a person's bones can fade into powder, become like the dust of the earth, not the loose bone. The loose bone is unbreakable. And what is it that gives the loose bone power, that feeds the loose bone? The food that we eat, Malava Malka, the fourth meal of Shabbos. So again, just to put that together for you, so you understand, King David, which represents the soul of Mashiach, is the fourth meal of Shabbos, which is right after Shabbos is over. And yet it's called the fourth meal of Shabbos, because it's, it's, King David is that construct, metaphysically, which understands Shabbos entering into the week, and transforming the mundane into Shabbos, which correlates with the Messianic period. So that's why the food that you eat at that critical moment is that which you're resurrected from in the time that will be all Shabbos. Do do you understand how it works? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Did you? No? Yeah. Yeah. And also, by the way, you know, the... um, The... uh, The... uh, Rebbe Elimelech of Lezhensk, the Noma Elimelech, talks about how the food that you eat, Malava Malka, right? This feast that we're talking about right now, after Shabbos, is a segula. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a holy blessing for an easier childbirth, right? So, um, and, and, and Reb Shlomo gave a very beautiful explanation for this. You see, it says in the Gemara that, you know when a person's happiest time of life is? when they're actually in their mother's belly before they're born. (laughs) 
I mean, that's sort of like the ultimate, that's the ultimate time because basically, you're basically just floating in the light learning Torah from an angel. Right? It's amazing, right? That This period is amazing. And, um, and it's, really, it's really like a time of all Shabbos. Right? And so, so Reb Shlomo explained, why does the food that you eat after Shabbos, why would that help in terms of childbirth? Because a baby on some level doesn't want to enter into the world because it doesn't want to enter into a space that isn't Shabbos. So what Reb Shlomo said was so beautifully, he said, if you're the type of person, uh, oh, we're talking about women right now, if you're the type of woman, if you're the type of mother who says, even when it's not Shabbos, I'm making it into Shabbos, so you're a person I can be born to. This is a family that I can be born to. So that's, so the baby comes out in a more gentle way. Amen, amen. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. Third meal is Yaakov? Third meal is Yaakov, yeah. And it says in the Gomorrah that a person who is careful to keep the third meal receives prote- protection um, at the time of Gogumagag, which is sort of what you know what the rest of the world calls the apocalyptic kind of like period of time. Wow. The, the, you know, Hevle Mashiach, the, the birth pangs of the, of the Messiah, where basically, basically, you know, to put it in modern vernacular, where all hell breaks loose, that, that a person receives merit to survive those times by keeping third meal. That's what the Gemara says. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Did you have some? Yeah. I just had another another question. Yeah, sure. So we talked about compassion for the three boys, right? Yeah. The that we have. Right. And so I was wondering, how should we think of other people's um, tragedies that right. are not necessarily Jewish tragedies? Yeah. Like right. you hear about shootings and right. sure. that sort of thing. How do we yeah. how, how do we respond to that? I mean we're 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 all God's children. So, you know, this is, you know, it's not just us. It's, it's, it's all of us. And, and, you know, there's, there's, there's a bond between all of us. I mean, the Jewish people are a family, but there are also other families. But they're still families, and they're still God's creations. And we still, you know, have a, a very, very deep and, and, and hopefully beautiful connection. And so, yeah, you know, you say, you know, Hashem should help, you know, their, their suffering should be, you know, consoled and relieved and they should receive whatever help that they need, you know. And, um, yeah, we can't uh, be myopic or um, callous, you know, because then it's just another expression of, of arrogance. And that's the whole point, is, is, is not to be walking around with this spirit of arrogance, you know. So, okay. Uh, I did.